This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we are talking about outrageous women who experience migraines. Julie McClure joins me. She's CEO at Hello.me and she's got something that's going to help your headaches. Also, are you thinking of opening your business? Well, the founder at Medispa Labella joins me to share how she puts her patrons' minds at ease. Dr. Lori Brado is opening the bedroom doors of couples across Canada through her national survey on sex and intimate partner violence. And Dr. Gurdeep Parhar answers your questions about masks, myths, and more. And why is vaginal health important as it relates to bladder health? I will tell you. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. You had headaches, right? I had a headache today. (laughs) And I didn't like it at all. But fortunately, I have never had a migraine. But my guest has. She's Julie McClure. She's on the line. And she's the CEO at Hello.me. And that's partly why she set up this company. Good evening, Julie. Good evening. How are you, Maureen? Uh, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. I just wanted to say, for those who don't know, a migraine is a primary headache disorder characterized by recurrent headaches that are moderate to severe. Typically, the headaches affect one half of the head. They're pulsating in nature. There may be an aura. They can last from a few hours to three days. You may have nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light, sound, or smell. Sounds awful. Would that be an accurate description of a migraine? That's pretty accurate. I often describe it as stab, like somebody stabbing you in the back of the eye. So it can be as strong uh, as that. It would be horrible. And you suffered with migraines for 10 years. Yeah, that's correct. I had chronic migraines for a decade from um, mid-20s to mid-30s. And, and how, did, how did that affect your quality of life? I was essentially in survival mode every day. So I was getting between four and six migraines a week. And with migraines, you have sort of a pre-migraine phase and a post-migraine phase. Uh, There's technical words for those. But I was always going in or out of a migraine. So I'd have one day a month where I actually felt completely clear-headed and, you know, no residual pain. And what are some of the causes of migraines? So a lot of women, so about 43% of women who are actually in the reproductive years suffer from migraines and, you know, three times as many women versus men. And a large reason for that is uh, hormonal imbalances or fluctuations. So a lot of women will actually get migraines around the time of their cycle, just prior to their cycle as their estrogen levels drop. So hormonal imbalance is a key factor that contributes to it. And as well, um, you know, what we found over the years and why we started Hello Me as well with our top-up tonic is women on hormonal birth control tend to be depleted in a lot of the key nutrients that when you are depleted can result in migraine headaches. So um, things like magnesium, uh, your B vitamins like B2, B6, B12, and folate, and CoQ10. And those are all related to um, depletions from hormonal birth control. Wow. Um, and, I, I, and I was on it while I had the chronic migraine. So that it, was it was... <laughs> and the, oh, you were on the pill before when yeah, you had I the chronic migraines. Pill the entire ten years. Right, you know, and a lot of um, women don't can't tolerate the pill. I have a phone call from uh, Don from Edmonton. Hi, Don. Hi there. Um, one of the simplest things I've found to do to avoid uh, getting sick or having massive headaches or being ill is track down the foods that you're eating. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, any kind of uh, Toxic grease will just absolutely make me ill or any type of red dye used in food colorings. Yep. So I've looked at there's a lot of foods or 
other products that you can take that will uh, cause you to be quite ill, violently ill, or you think you're going to die kind of thing. So I've learned over the years to uh, screen out these particular types of foods out of my diet and uh, to avoid them. Sometimes I can get fooled. I noticed there's uh, one company that uh, people use, in, uh, well, it's not even really an oil, it's a petroleum byproduct almost, but they use it uh, in cooking. It, but they've learned to make it smell good, but when you eat it, then your system knows right away that there's a problem with it. What's it, it called? Yeah, okay. Do you want me to say it on the air? No. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I right, text me or email me. Tell me what it is. <laughs> the other thing is, um, you know, alcohol can do this, <laughs> and that's exactly full disclosure. That's why I have a headache today. I I don't drink because I can't because I get sick. I get a headache, and so but I needed. <laughs> A glass of wine last night. <laughs> I didn't really need it. You know, my friends forced me. Anyway. <laughs> was it red or white? It was white. doesn't matter. It okay. does not matter. Um, but anyway, so I got a headache all day. I can't wait to go to bed <laughs> tonight. Oh, gosh. Yeah, um, that's not fun. Yeah, no, it's not. And so, yeah, thanks, Dawn. That's a great, great call. And, and you know, it is to look at those foods as well. Um, triggers. Just, yeah. Triggers, Julie. Yes. And what are some of the other triggers that people so, might experience? I mean, Everyone's different. There's a lot of triggers. So over the years, having gone through this, um, you know, they could be anything from chemicals. So that's what Dawn's relating to. So things that are causing inflammation in the body. So mm-hmm. it could be chemicals. It could be things like MSG that's in the foods. For me, that's a big trigger. Alcohol. Um, it could be changes in barometric pressure. So you may find when the weather is starting to shift and you're get, about to get a rainy day, you might get a really bad migraine. Right. Or if you fly. Um but a lot of the times it's around chemicals, um, food preservatives like nitrates and sulfites. And Julie, uh, I've got to cut you off because we're up against no the problem. clock right now. Thank you so much. Great information. We're going to have you back next week. So this pandemic has certainly put a damper on many businesses, restaurants and and pubs and clothing stores from retail to well, liquor stores are doing quite well um, and probably uh, cannabis stores are doing okay too. Uh, but anyway, we've got to keep those open. But some businesses have been shut down and other businesses, and but now uh, it has been okay to open up, but it can be challenging. It can be difficult. Uh, so joining me on the line, I'm delighted to have Adriana, who is the founder at Medi Spa La Bella, a fabulous spa in Richmond, British Columbia, actually in Steveson Village. And she joins me on the line. Good evening, Adriana. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderful show. Oh, you're so sweet. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge um, because I know your spa shut down during the, pan- the the height of the pandemic and when the COVID cases were up and you've reopened recently. Uh, so what's that been like for you? Well, it's definitely been an interesting uh, whole change of events with everything being shut down, like you were saying, and we've had to um, definitely change our protocols a little bit with how we do things, but we are managing and making it work. So it's pretty much everything that we've done before, but just a little bit more um, cleaning and quite a bit more diligent with wiping down everything and sterilizing everything. And it's a lot more cleaning, but uh, it's been so far so great. So I'm very happy about that. That's great. And, and I, I mean, you're lucky that you, your business has survived this because a lot of businesses have not. 
Yes. It's uh, yes. Unfortunate. So we have to count our blessings there. But um, uh, in terms of the patrons, are you asking, and I, and I know it's been very controversial and there were some protests across the country today about masks. Are you having uh, the patrons wear masks when you, when they come in? Yeah. So what we do when we have our clients come in is we screen them over the phone and we make sure they're healthy to keep the staff healthy and safe as well as our other clients. So we screen them over the phone and then when they come in for their treatment, we also do a digitalized um, I guess thermometer. So we don't have to actually physically touch the client, mm-hmm. just kind of a little radar gun, point at their heads, see their temperature, as well as we ask them the traditional questions of have you been sick recently, traveled, and so forth. And all of our clients have been healthy, so I'm very fortunate about that. That's great. As well as um, it's been good, and all of our clients have been really great that way. So that's fin- I do like them to wear masks, though. But right. And do all of you wear masks as well? Oh, of course. So yes. I'm fully into scrubs and the whole nine yards with the masks and the face shields. Right. And of course, hand washing, hand washing, and, and I imagine, and which you probably did anyway, as we oh. do um, <laughs> in this field. Um, and then physical distancing. Are you promoting that as well in your, in your clinic? Most definitely. So we've got one client in at a time um, to one staff member ratio, as well as I try to physical distance myself as much as possible. But that is a little bit difficult when you are doing you know, the treatments, but it is definitely one client to one institution. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful because I think, and and as we've seen recently is people who are gathering uh, indoors in particular, when there's a particular number, there's an increased risk of um, transmission of COVID-19. So, and what's the sense from your clients? Are they, are they, I bet they're happy. I heard, I had one patient of mine say that she has so much pain and she couldn't see her massage therapist for, uh, you know, a couple of months. And, you know, it was just the one thing that she was desperate to have again. So are your, are your patrons very happy to be back? I mean, they're definitely happy to be back, like you were saying, with the pain and everything. It's been so hard for the clients to power through that and the different changes and everything. So the fact that they're able to get back to their treatments and everything, they're definitely happy given the circumstances, of course, but they're definitely happy that they're able to get their treatments again and help with the pain and everything like that. Right. And you, you provide lots of services beyond massage, although massages are fabulous. <laughs> um, <laughs> what are some of the other services that you provide out there in, in Steveston village of Richmond, British Columbia? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> well, there's a wide range. <laughs> um, on the daily. Yes. What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> so typically what we do is we also help with pain treatments. We help with, Um, anti-aging, weight loss, um, skin tightening, rejuvenation, helping with muscle toning, um, just overall physical health, as well as I guess it helps mentally as well. You know, if you feel better, your mental health is a lot better as well. So it's kind of an all-around kind of service that really seems to help the clients. And it's definitely tailored and customizable to each client. That's excellent. And are you finding that, um, I mean, you can only have one, you only have one person, one client in at a time. Are yes. you finding that uh, your, your wait list is going up, you know, are people, 
looking for these services. I mean, there was a, you know, a lot, lots of jokes on the internet that, you know, it's going to get ugly out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely been uh, interesting, that's for sure. But yes, we'll, because we give such an ample amount of time e- between each client, um, we have a rigorous kind of cleaning protocol and everything like that. We give ample amount of time between each client. So we've had to scale down a little bit with how many clients we're allowed to treat in a day. Right. But that's the only real difference. Um, but definitely still a good amount of people wanting to get their treatments in for sure. Well, that's fantastic. Well, good for you for putting your clients' minds at ease. I, I say the greatest gift you can give anybody is peace of mind. That's how Definitely. I've always, always felt. And, and, uh, and you're doing that by abiding by those guidelines and, you know, caring, you're really caring, going that extra mile, caring for your clients and taking this very seriously and uh, Absolutely. ensuring that there's no uh, cross-contamination or uh, infection in your fabulous uh, yes. spa, the Medi Spa La Bella. Wonderful. Yeah, we make sure to... We treat all of our clients like family, so if you don't want your family member sick. I don't, wouldn't expect anybody else to get sick, so we really stress that we make sure we put everybody's health and safety first, for sure. That's excellent. And how can people get in touch if they would like to? Well, they're able to find us on our website at uh, com, or they're also able to give us a call at 604-910-0219, and we'll definitely be more than happy to help them with any questions and book them in. That's so great. I'll be booking my massage very shortly. Thank you so definitely. much. Definitely. Look forward to that yeah. for sure. I definitely need it. And anyway, Adriana, Relax. thank you so much. I really Thanks appreciate so much, you. We are welcome. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. You have a great night. Thanks, you too. Great education on if you have a business, how to open up, how to put your patrons' minds at ease. This COVID-19 pandemic has produced a a number of casualties, and we're comfortable talking about those casualties, like seniors in long-term care homes or the inadequate amounts of personal protective equipment or boarded up storefronts. But there's also some less visible consequences, like what goes on behind the bedroom doors and also what goes on inside of homes, especially when somebody is living with an abusive person. And so uh, we don't really talk too much about gender-based or domestic violence, but that certainly occurs. Dr. Lori Brado is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine, and she's leading a national survey to measure changes in sexual health and also the prevalence of gender-based violence during COVID-19. And she joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Brado. Hi, Maureen. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're on the line here, educating us about how the pandemic is affecting our sexual behavior. I just saw a, a tweet a tweet that said there have been more divorces, um, and it also says, and the lawyers are predicting more. <laughs> Not sure if the lawyers are wanting those divorces, but anyway, um, uh, is you know how is this pandemic affecting our sexual behavior, particularly amongst couples? Yeah, I mean, well, we've learned from past pandemics. Um, Certainly COVID-19 is not the first one, and it's probably not going to be the last, but it is something that has been studied with past pandemics. Um, And what we know is that rates of gender-based violence 
um, have increased as a result, uh, again, looking at past pandemics. But even in the early days of COVID-19, some early data that came out of China found that rates of intimate partner violence, so that's uh, violence exerted by one partner towards um, another partner, typically one that one, one lives with, rose about three times their national rates. Um, there have been similar data rising from other countries showing similar rises in, in uh, domestic violence and gender-based violence, but not too much data coming out of Canada. So that's why we sought out to launch this study, and we did so in um, in early April. And so we've been following a cohort of about 900 Canadians every month since then. And and what are the kinds of things that you're looking at in terms of um, of that s- survey? So first of all, we, we set out primarily to look at sexual health and, and sexual desire. And as, as you know well, Maureen, that's a, an area of research interest of mine. And in part, it was because there were early speculations that, well, you know, in nine months, there's going to be a baby boom because, mm-hmm. of course, what are people doing with all this free time on their hands? They must be engaging in sexual activity. Um, and so we set out to really look at that question, changes in sexual activity, changes in sexual desire, rates of people having um, not necessarily non-consensual sex, but unwanted sex. So sex that they engaged in out of obligation or felt like they had to because everyone else was. Um, and then we also set out to differentiate that from rates of non-consensual sex and also sexualized violence. Um, and what we know is that, uh, well, it's widely accepted by now that COVID-19 represents a fairly significant chronic stressor. Mm-hmm. And chronic stress is one of the leading contributors to changes in sexual desire and sexual activity. So that's why we've been tracking these different parts of, of healthy sexuality, but also um, when sexuality becomes violent and abusive as well, unfortunately. Right. And there's a fair amount of fear uh, associated mm-hmm. with this pandemic. So, you know, if somebody has lost a job, the fear that they may never get one again, or if they mm-hmm. have a business that it may never be able to open again, uh, or fear of the virus itself, of contracting Mm -hmm. that, or fear that your partner may not uh, respect the fact that there is a pandemic, so they may not Mm -hmm. be as careful as you are. So so how much is that um, affecting the sex lives of of people generally, would you say, because I know you're just doing the survey now? Yeah, so fear fear is really um, uh, the the thought the thought expression of anxiety. So when we feel anxious about something and, you know, there's nothing like a pandemic than to cultivate fear of the unknown, right? So how long will this last? Will I contract it? Will my family be safe? Will someone I know die? Um, Et cetera, et cetera. And so those anxieties and, and fears can uh, also really wreak havoc on the brain, on our nervous system, on the very neurotransmitters or brain chemicals, as well as body hormones that contribute to sexuality. So that's another thing that we're measuring in this large study, our rates of anxiety, rates of stress, chronic stress, and also rates of depression. Now, some people, um, understandably, as a result of financial stress and other emotional stress, it's actually triggered a, a depression for them. Um, so we have also been seeing much higher rates of depression during this period of time. And so we're, we're trying to unpack if there are these changes in sexuality, 
Uh, to what extent is that due to stress, anxiety, depression, or other factors? There's also lots of other household and domestic changes that have arisen as a result of COVID-19, such as homeschooling and taking care of elders or perhaps taking care of someone who is sick as a result of contracting COVID-19. Exactly. And, and I know you do a lot of work in desire discrepancy, and uh, which is one partner wants more sex than the other. And, you know, in a pandemic, everybody was sent home and, and you know, there may be this disappointment. Are you seeing a, a bigger rise in our complaints of desire discrepancy with associated with the pandemic? Well, we, we haven't been able to analyze that yet, um, but uh, that would not surprise me. So, you know, sometimes there might be um, subtle differences in, in a couple's sexual interest in sex life that doesn't quite reach the level of being so problematic that it would send them to seek help. But in the case of an event like this, which would be a, a major catalyst or chronic um, stressor, this could, what I, what I would predict, um, although we haven't measured this specifically, but what I would predict is that we're going to see overall rates of sexual difficulty and sexual dissatisfaction increasing in couples. My hope is that we don't, but I, 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 I think all the data are pointing in that direction. Right. And do you think for some couples, this has brought them closer together? Uh, oftentimes when we struggle with something, we do bond with somebody who's gone through it with us. Um, do you think there's some hope there? Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to forget resilience. And, uh, you know, in the same way that a chronic stress can drive people apart, other times a major life adversity can drive people closer together. So coping together through a difficult time, making decisions together, maybe co-parenting and co-homeschooling and doing things like that together can lead uh, partners to maybe see a side of their, their partner that they haven't seen before, leading to more appreciation um, and, and more satisfaction, both relationship as well as sexual satisfaction. So that's something we're also able to measure in our surveys. Who are those couples that are really resilient through this stressful time and how can we predict that? And is that something that we can cultivate? Right, absolutely. And um, the speaking of that, Cultivating Desire, your phenomenal book, I, I don't want to forget <laughs> to mention. Um, I, I do want to ask, um, is... Uh, COVID-19, well, oh, I want to get back on the, sorry, before I ask that question about the, uh, the home life, oftentimes yeah. women still, and, and a lot of guys might email me. So, um, about this, that women do more of the lion's share of the housework mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. that's still true. That science bears mm -hmm. that out or the research bears yeah. that out still. It's mm -hmm. getting better. It's more even, but it's not the same. So women may take on a lot more of the worry of the care mm -hmm. of the kids, the care of the parents, the care of the house. They may be the only one working outside of the home. And mm -hmm. so then the male partner, um, you know, may not pull their weight and that can cause stress in the relationship, I imagine as well. Absolutely. And not to mention, Maureen, women are far more likely to be the frontline healthcare workers and also far more likely to represent the janitorial staff who've been working around the clock to keep um, our institutions and hospitals and grocery stores and other places very clean and safe. And so um, I think what we're going to see is an economic impact that also disproportionately impacts women more so than men. That's right. And then lots of um, maybe married people are asking this or wondering about this um, for uh, reasons that aren't so <laughs> honorable, but mm -hmm. certainly single people. Is 
COVID-19 a sexually transmitted infection and should we be wearing masks <laughs> during sex? Oh, it's it's such an interest. I think that was one of the first questions that I got asked middle of middle of March. And I think Bonnie Henry was asked a similar question. As far as we know, it is not a sexually transmitted infection. There was one study that showed um, that it found traces of the COVID-19 virus in semen. Um, to the best of my knowledge, that has not been replicated in other studies. But... If you are engaging in sexual activity that involves any kind of face-to-face contact, coughing, sneezing, droplets, then that would be the mode of transmission. So it's far more likely to be transmitted through those respiratory droplets than it is through uh, fluids involved in sexual activity. You got to stop before the kissing now. I don't want to (laughs) forget to mention your amazing book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Sexual Desire. Uh, desire. Um, And that's available on Amazon and, and at Indigo and anywhere else. Yeah, that's about it. And I should mention that there's a whole section in the book about chronic stress. And at the time, of course, this was pre-COVID that I wrote it, but it's um, it seems quite relevant in, in uh, today's day and age. <laughs> it was relevant <laughs> when you wrote it, too. We all have the chronic <laughs> stress. Dr. Brado, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. And good luck with your survey. And we'll have you back when you've got the results in. You bet. Thanks so much for having me, Maureen. Uh, He is a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor who is dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19, the one and only Dr. Gurdip Parhar joins me on the line. And if you have a question for the doctor, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? Good, well, thank you. That's great. Now, um, we've had, I've had a few emails that I've, I'd like to uh, present to you, but uh, first and foremost, there have been some anti-mask rallies that have drawn crowds in Calgary and Edmonton amidst this coronavirus pandemic. I imagine they weren't wearing, wearing masks, <laughs> the very name, the anti-mask. Um, and this is about freedom, um, but also, you know, masks have been shown to slow COVID-19. Um, and, and, you know, masks aren't easy to get. I remember at the be- at the outset of this pandemic, I, I think I worked two weeks full time to actually get the proper prote- um, personal protective equipment that, that we needed. And we're actually seeing that, um, you know, British Columbia, for example, uh, may not be ready for the next wave. And there are some uh, PPE supplies that are, that are needed and they, they may not be available. Um, so does this confirm what I've been saying for weeks, that nurses and other frontline workers did not have access to the PPE, PPE that they needed, and will they have them in the future? So absolutely, Maureen, you, uh, you continue to be right as always. Um, but in go. addition to the, <laughs> the few cities and towns that you mentioned, there were several protests across Canada where people were saying they had the right not to wear masks. And, you know, as healthcare providers, I think we always respect patient choice and patient autonomy. Um, but when, it, when there is an impact on public health, then I think we need to be thinking of others, not just ourselves. Um, but what you're referring to is, unfortunately, you're speaking about Premier Horgan and some of the um, comments that he had to um, go back on 
apologize for in terms of addiction and substance use. Unfortunately, this wasn't good news for the government either, was that um, one of the news outlets was able to get their hands on some documents and memos and actually showed that when the, when the epidemic and pandemic broke out in BC, we weren't ready, that our PPE supplies were really depleted. And you'll know, and Maureen, you've been um, especially commenting on the nurses that have been disadvantaged and not having PPE. There's over 100 nurses that have made claims to WorkSafe BC saying that they haven't had the PPE despite having to work in um, high-risk environments. And so ultimately, Dr. Henry said that she'd had flagged this um, years ago, that there, there wasn't enough um, PPE being stockpiled. So but between um, July 2013 and by January 2020, the supply, which was valued at $5.7 million in 2013, that's $5.7 million, had actually depleted to $2 million. And, but, and there's lots of different explanations for this. Some of the health authorities at Vancouver Coastal had some supplies that had expired. Um, we had, as a province, helped out the Ebola crisis in Africa and parts of the U.S. and sent supplies there, but unfortunately they weren't replenished. Um, Northern Health Authority had less than $15,000 worth of supplies. So, Maureen, when, when your colleagues and my colleagues across the province are saying um, that, you know, maybe the health minister ministry isn't totally um, aware of some of the shortages that, uh, that our people on the ground were um, reporting, um, there, there really wasn't that full supply there that, that was needed, and that's coming to light now. Absolutely. And it, and it, you know, instills fear in workers and in frontline workers as well. And it's also extremely stressful to try and source some of that PPE. Um, so I, I have a question um, from a listener and he writes that, um, why are we only using or promoting masks? Can't one get the virus through their eyes? Why aren't we promoting goggles as well? Um, that's, a, that's a great question, and, and as um, I think all of our listeners who've been talking about this for weeks know that the entry points can be the eyes, the nose, and the mouth, and you're absolutely right. I think if there is the potential for um, exposure um, through the eyes, then obviously goggles should be worn and glasses. We tend to think that's more of an issue for people that are in high-risk environments, really close environments, or healthcare workers or first responders. Um, for everyone else, um, the, the more likely um, um, sort of uh, interchange change happens more the oil route. But remember, when we're wearing a mask, it's not so much that you're that is protecting you from others, but it's protecting you from infecting others. So it's it's you coughing out those droplets that's protecting the public um, when you're wearing the mask. You're less likely to I suppose cry on someone or to blow your nose on someone um, because um, and then yeah, obviously there needs to be a barrier there. So just to remind, for excellent question, but but remember the mask isn't meant to protect ourselves, but uh, but more to protect others from us. Absolutely, and I think people do actually forget that. Um, so what have we learned from this PPE situation? Are, are people going to be uh, better prepared the next time if there's a second wave, as has been talked about? I think the alarm bells have rung, and now that this has happened, um, hopefully we'll get through this pandemic at some point. I think that now we'll be more more vigilant about being prepared. There is there will be no excuse in the future, I think. Um, but one one indication of that is that the federal government, and this has been in the news this week, Maureen, as well. So much has happened in the last week, but is that they're actually stockpiling now um, enough supplies to give every Canadian two doses of the COVID vaccine. So that you you might think about just the vaccine. We talked a lot about vaccine development and the research, but remember, you still need alcohol swabs, you need syringes.
syringes, you need bandages. Um, you know, and so the the federal government is, although the vaccine hasn't um, been, uh, it, we don't haven't identified a successful vaccine yet, there's already preparing for all these other supplies. So there isn't a shortage of, for example, alcohol swabs. Uh, that that are needed around that vaccine. And, um, you know, some people, I've heard some patients of mine in particular, say that they would be afraid to take a vaccine because they feel it's been rushed. Uh, they feel that they're not enough time, even though we don't have one, and there, you know, there may or may not be one on the horizon that is effective, um, but they feel that if it comes out, you know, in January, like some people have predicted, or even next year, that it would be too fast to have tested. What are your thoughts on that? So as a physician, if somebody was asking me my medical advice on it, Marina, you'd be the same. I think we'd have to look at the research at the time. You know, how effective um, are, are, is the research for that particular vaccine? What are the pros and cons and what are the potential side effects? Um, we're being optimistic when we think the vaccine is going to be a bit of a cure-all or a preventative, but it may not work for some people. So we'll have to look at the vaccine and maybe there'll be a choice of hopefully even more than one vaccine. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think there was a, a survey that said, was it 70% of Canadians would be keen on getting a, a, a vaccine that was successful. That's Numbers right. were a lot less in the U.S. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it, it will be an individual choice. And and I can assure you that Health Canada, who ultimately proves these vaccines, won't be proving uh, vaccines that aren't safe. Now, will they be fully effective is what I'll be more curious to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about the rates of disease. Um, we, you know, we, I, we've heard in the news, you know, there's been less than 1% rate of disease in British Columbia. There's less than 1% rate of disease in the state of Massachusetts, for example, and, and New York, I believe, is the same. Uh, there's a rise in the rates of disease in the South right now. Um, and so what does that mean that fewer than 1% of British Columbians had coronavirus by the time the restrictions were eased in May, according to a recent study? Um, so there's a lot of attention given to the results of this study by the health minister in British Columbia, Adrian Dix, and also Dr. Bonnie Henry. And so uh, is this good news, this low number of people found to have been infected with COVID-19? As, as I said, Maureen, this has been a busy week. So the other big announcement this week in British Columbia was the first um, antibody study that was published um, in Canada, and this was NBC. And what they did was they took, not volunteers, but they took random samples of people who had gone to the laboratory mm-hmm. for some other blood tests. And these were, you know, to protect the confidentiality, they weren't, um, they, there was no identifying information. And what they ultimately found out was that when um, some of the measures were put in place, about 1% of those samples had um, uh, had evidence of a COVID-19 infection um, and antibodies. Now, and before that, in March, um, there was about 1% or less, and, and there weren't antibodies to it then. So, so it is indicating that we were very successful in keeping the infection rates very low in that vicinity of 1%. Bit of a double-edged sword, though, um, because it also may suggest that, well, first, two things. One, two things that it suggests. One is that even if you calculate 1% of the population, that's a lot more cases of COVID than we were reporting as confirmed cases of COVID. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just to tell us that there was a lot more of COVID-19 infection in the community than the numbers that were being reported. And we, you, Maureen, you and I have talked about this many times because we weren't testing everyone for a, for a 
part of the for some of the months this year, we knew that there were more COVID cases in the community than what were being confirmed. The second part is though is that it tells you that there isn't a lot of there aren't a lot of individuals out there with antibody levels protective of COVID. So that's the other thing. While it's good to have a less than one percent infection rate, it also means we're not anywhere close to herd immunity on that. I'm not sure you know, I'm a nurse conscience advisor, so that means I deal with people who leak urine, typically, and I'm going to get to the vagina very soon because I'm also the vagina whisperer, that's another job I have, Um, because people who leak urine, it can actually impact their quality of life big time, and uh, many people don't know where to turn, or they go to their doctors, and they don't actually, um, you know, they... It takes a woman on average seven years to see her doctor about treatment for leakage of urine. Many uh, women believe that leakage of urine is normal. I have to say men don't believe that. They have one drop and they're in the office. Um, But women will put up with this for a much longer period of time. Also, leaking urine is never normal. There are a number of treatments from lifestyle and behavioral strategies to... um, uh, to medications, to devices, to lots of different things. And vaginal health is related to bladder health. And in fact, after menopause or even during the perimenopausal years, the estrogen receptors decrease in the urogenital tract and that can actually lead to a mid-urethral weakness. And so when women cough or sneeze, they may get leakage of urine and men leak urine too. So that's another segment. Um, but so they, because the estrogen receptors have decreased, they may actually get this weakness and they may, or they may get urgency or frequency um, and they may leak with cough. Uh, some women don't don't uh, empty their bladder, so that's retention. Uh, there's also functional urinary incontinence. There's overactive bladder. There's urge incontinence. So the diagnosis is really important. And so why is your vaginal health important for your bladder health? That is because um, it's all connected. And so women in the perimenopausal years and the menopausal years, they get a condition called genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM. So I, I hear all these like crazy misbeliefs about vaginal health uh, from the patients in my clinical practice. And just a couple of them that I heard this week were, um, in addition to there's dubious products and dubious advice, and people are trying to cash in on this, um, but people who have absolutely no medical background whatsoever. If somebody has developed a cream and they for your vagina and you are to use it by dipping your finger in and then sticking it in your vagina, it is not going to work. You are wasting your money. I'll get into that uh, very shortly as well. And it, you also have to have the particular type of uh, ingredients, you know, uh, to put into your vagina as well that will actually help to heal it and to keep it moist and lubricated. Um, But anyway, getting back to the things that I, I'm all over the place with this, aren't I? Because I have that headache. (laughs) Anyway, and I don't mean to be, but nonetheless, a patient in my clinical practice this week told me that her physiotherapist said, uh, because you have a certain amount of fat, this woman was age 75, your vaginal estrogen should be fine. That is, That could not be further from the truth. A woman's vagina, especially if she's experiencing burning, itching, dryness, um, painful sex, leakage, 
you must have your vagina inspected, okay, and looked at by somebody who is trained in viewing vaginas from a health perspective. So it would be a nurse continence advisor. It would be a gynecologist. It would be a GP with a special interest in women's health and who deals with vaginal health. It is a specialty. Um, And uh, a urologist may also look at your vaginal health as well. And vaginal health is so important. It's important for uh, leakage of urine, because your estrogen receptors have decreased. It's also important for you to experience an orgasm. And so many women find, and and they sometimes may not connect the dots, but they may have been able to have an orgasm prior to perimenopause or prior to menopause. And then they find like it takes them such a long time to experience. And so in order for the female sexual response cycle to cycle through so that you get your orgasm, um, and, and most women require clitoral clitoral stimulation for that, but, uh, you actually need your vaginal tissues to be healthy. And so, there's a couple of ways to make your vaginal tissues healthy. And oftentimes I say uh, it's just as important to moisturize your vagina as it is your face because it is. It actually works on your vagina because of the the type of tissue that it is. So it absorbs better into the mucosal uh, tissue. So don't waste your money on facial moisturizers. Waste it on, <laughs> use it on vaginal moisturizers. And the types that I recommend are something that has hyaluronic acid in it, vitamin E, natural products. There's a suppository. It's called Repagyne. It is inserted and in, you, you do insert that into your vagina, but guess what? It gets in there and it stays in there and then it melts and then your vaginal tissues absorb it. These creams that are promoted by these sort of, you know, people who are trying to capitalize on menopause, um, for women who are desperate for solutions be, and, and they, they can only develop a cream because they don't even understand how the whole thing works. But anyway, you need an applicator. And, uh, and so, um, I've heard from so many women, they'll say they bought this or they they bought that and it didn't work. And I'm like, well, it's not going to work. And so um, another type is something called Gynotroph. It's actually a, a liquid as well. And it has a uh, has hyaluronic acid in it and vitamin E also. And uh, it does have a plunger with it. You do one of the drawbacks on that is that you have to wash that plunger out and reuse that. It's kind of a bit of a pain. If you've ever tried to uh, rewash a vaginal plunger... <laughs> It's um, it's not easy. And then another one is something called Fem P H E M M E, and these are available at drugstores. Um, you know, in your area, I'm sure. And if you, they don't have them on the shelves, you can ask them. But Fem also has; they are preloaded syringes. Um, the one thing it it does have a little bit more on the glycogen side. It doesn't have hyaluronic acid in it, uh, but a lot of women feel uh, that it works very well as well. And and honestly, these especially the gynotroph and the fem can feel like a rain shower for your vagina. And so they, they can be very relieving, but also the localized estrogen, which is by prescription. Many women need that. And it's taken daily for typically nightly for two weeks and then um, twice a week at night on a Monday and a Thursday. But it will not only help you as one of the, one of the treatments, um, uh, one of the treatments uh, it will help you uh, for is your leakage of urine or your 
urgency, for example, but it's one of the things that is going to help you with your leakage of urine. I am here to tell you, well, I'm here to do the radio show, but I want to tell you that you do not have to suffer with urinary incontinence. It is not normal. It will lead to isolation, depression. You will pay so much money in pads. It affects the environment. It affects your quality of life, your relationships. Many women leak at... Um, orgasm as well. And then other, other women. So it's a combination effort and you must actually, you have to look at the contributing factors and you must go to somebody who is skilled and experienced and trained in this area. There's also, there's so many treatments from conservative measures like urge suppression and and devices like pessaries. And um, so there's lots of different things you can use. Okay. So I have a text message. Hi, Maureen. Started taking products like Yarrow Tea, vitamin D3. That's good. Ionic zinc. Zinc is good. A good quality vitamin C. It might irritate your bladder and you might just be peeing that out. So be careful with that. Blue green algae, eh. minerals and enzymes every day to bump up my immune system. No evidence to support any of that. The side effects is that in recent year, I have been underperforming my male duties, according to my female partner of six years. And now have gone way over the top and have turned into 20-year-old, she has started a similar program and has more energy. However, I think I have to back off of my program and pretend I'm over 50 again, hoping she will catch up in the future. Um, Anyhow, the thing is, it's difficult to say, oh, yes, this is the cure-all, this is it. Um, It's, you know, because typically when people, you know, there may have been some other changes uh, that the person has made, but the best thing, you know, sex is about blood flow. And that's the point is that sex is about blood flow. And, um, and so anything you can do to get your blood flowing better um, will be helpful. But, uh, but vaginal health, really important in terms of uh, recurrent urinary tract infections as well. Many women suffer with recurrent urinary tract infections. And so it's often, they need to be treated with anti antibiotics. They will affect your natural biome. You are at risk of your sexual desire decreasing even more. And you've heard Dr. Brado earlier on the program, the pandemic can actually bring about low sexual desire for some women. And so if you're getting recurrent urinary tract infections, and we see that in postmenopausal women. And so for women who are over the age of 65, it can be very dangerous. You can get urosepsis, end up being hospitalized, and it can actually result in death. So it is so important. If you think I can just live with it. And many doctors will say to you, you know, how bad is it? Can you live with it? And it's like, come on, you know, I breastfed six kids for crying out loud. I can hang from the, <laughs> the any bridge, um, you know, but you know, women, we, we put up with a lot, but you don't have to put up with leakage of urine. And there are a number of treatments available and, um, you know, speak to your doctor about that. But also if your doctor doesn't know what to do, then ask for a, a referral. Uh, I deal with it all the time. I deal with it from uh, clinical practices, so I'm in the brick-and-mortar buildings, but I'm also virtual. And so I do lots of virtual consults for women and men who leak urine and also who have low sexual desire issues as well and also are you know in midlife and facing uh, perimenopausal and menopausal issues, especially the intimate health issues that, that uh, we tend not to talk about, but they're related to emotional health, they're related to body image. Many women just expect that they're going to gain weight 
and just going to have, you know, they're going to be overweight in midlife. And that is not the case. Oftentimes women slow down their activity and leakage of urine can stop you from playing tennis or hiking or biking or getting your activity going. And especially if you're feeling down about it and isolated and being at home, you know, really and not able to go out uh, because you're afraid that you're going to leak or you need to know where every single bathroom is on your trails, on your trips, wherever you're going, you know, it can cause a lot of stress. So the point of the matter is that vaginal and bladder health are related and it's critical that you get uh, treatment from the right person. Don't buy dubious products that have absolutely no science behind them. Um, You know, there's also this whole thing on hormone testing for women and lots of women are told they have adrenal fatigue. Adrenal fatigue, lady, is called life, okay? Um, You're busy, you're going to get tired, especially in those child-rearing years, the sandwich generation, we're taking care of our parents, we're taking care of the kids. We are doing it all and not doing it because we need to actually manage our life. And if we are not doing it, and it's because of leakage of urine or vaginal dryness, painful sex, low sexual desire, there are certainly treatments for you. Anyway, so... Uh, just my, my little, that's what I do kind of all week, um, is deal with bladder health issues and low sexual desire and, uh, vaginal pain issues and vaginal dryness and leakage of urine. And also that leads to sexless marriages. And it also leads to self-esteem and many women, uh, deal with body image issues and especially at midlife and, and, you know, yeah, you need to cut down what you're eating and you need to up your exercise in order to stay trim. And I do... I've mentioned it on the program before, called the all-in diet. Happy to send that to you. Um, and, and also just feel free to email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com um, for any other of those below-the-belt intimate issues. And, and believe me, you treat those and you will feel so much better and you will get back to the bedroom faster than you ever dreamed of before. Um, and so it'll just make you feel fantastic um, all over. So know that and then share that with your sisters and your friends and your daughters and your mothers and your aunts and everybody that there is treatment for this. And it's such a common issue. 51% of women report stress urinary incontinence, which is leaking with coughing, sneezing, exercise, or going from a lying to a standing. Anytime you're putting additional pressure on your abdomen, puts pressure on your bladder and you are, especially if you have that mid urethral weakness, you are at risk of leaking. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.